This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. We are looking tonight at verses 1 through 3. Hebrews 11, verses 1 through 3. It's found on, found on page 1007. Hebrews 11, of course, is a chapter well known for both its description of faith and uh, more as John did this morning, it's pointing us to examples of faith, to demonstrations of faith. And we'll be looking at these as we go through this chapter, Lord willing, in the weeks ahead. Uh, tonight, however, we're looking at the uh, more the description of it, uh, verses 1 through 3. Hear the Word of God. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Thanks to the Lord for his word. Let's pray together. Father, in this late hour of the day, we come to your word. And pray that you would stir us up, Lord, to hunger for it, to receive it, to feed on it. Father, your word is truth. We ask that you would sanctify us by that truth. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Robert Cheesebro. Any of y'all know of him? Ring a bell? No? Sorry? Sorry? Close. You may, yeah, Cheesebro, you may have seen that. Robert Cheesebro is an inventor of a product he, I know you've heard of, and that is Vaseline, a product that he took off uh, rod oil, extra oil that accumulates on the, the drilling shaft of oil. This may, you may not use it after this. That was refined from this oil, this wax, this rod wax that would develop on uh, the shafts of oil rigs. And he took it and refined it from that to develop Vaseline petroleum jelly. Well, Cheesebro, as he was working on this, believed in this product so strongly, what he was working on, uh, that he became his own guinea pig for testing it. He would burn himself, not his whole body, but part of himself, with acid or with flame. He would cut himself and scratch himself so deeply that he bore the scars of his tests the rest of his life. But he proved his product worked. And people had only to look at his now healed up wounds and burns to see the value of his product and his faith in his product. Now, in a similar way, Paul himself boasts of his product and demonstrates his faith in his product, if we want to put it that way, use that term, 
what he was proclaiming, namely the gospel of Christ. Had faith in it to the degree that Paul himself could say, I bear in my body the marks of Christ. Now, most likely when he says that, he's referring to the the scars of the whippings and the beatings that he suffered for the sake of the gospel. Paul was willing to suffer for it and to point to those scars for this reason. He had faith in it. He had faith in the gospel, that it was true and that it met the deepest needs of our sinful and hurting hearts. But when we refer to chapter 11, legally, talking about a bad thing, we're talking about bankruptcy, right? But when you come to the book of Hebrews and talk about chapter 11, you're talking about a good thing. You're talking not about bankruptcy, but you're talking about wealth, wealth of faith, strong faith that teaches us about faith, not in an abstract way, although it starts out with that. We'll look at that tonight, but in very concrete ways. Look at this person. Look how they lived. Look at how they demonstrated faith in the Lord. How they demonstrated faith in the gospel, even to bearing the marks of Christ and their diligence, their faithfulness in God, their faithfulness uh, in life, their faith in God uh, in these ways. Their confidence in it is born, in many cases, in their bodies. What it looks like in real life. Now, in some ways, it's kind of unfortunate that there's there's the beginning of a new chapter, that there's a break here, because it tends to hide the fact that, that 11.1 is very closely connected with chapter 10, verse 39. Now, we looked at that, and in the end of chapter 10 there, he commends his readers for their past perseverance, even in suffering, their joy, even in suffering, even in persecution. He challenges them to continue on. Uh, To turn back, he says, is to be destroyed. But to press forward in faith is to receive the reward. And so he says, we're not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And then immediately he picks up in the next verse. Now we see, new chapter, chapter 11, thought break, we're into a new chapter. Or maybe you read 11 the next day, because it's a new chapter a new day. But the two are very closely re- related. They're connected by the word faith. Notice verse 39. We are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now, faith, there's not a break. He just continues with that thought. This, this is what faith looks like. The kind of faith that leads to our souls being preserved. So we need to recognize, in many ways, chapter 11 is merely uh, continuing on and even unfolding and expanding that last line of verse 39. We need to see the connection. Now, faith, he says, is the assurance of things hoped for. It just flows from it. It means taking God's word, or taking God, rather, at his word and living accordingly. So we want to look at verses 1 through 3 here this evening that serve as a little bit of a prologue itself to chapter 11 sort of set the stage for the various persons we'll look at as we go through it. Now, first of all, in verse 1, as we look at this, we find faith defined. Uh, Faith defined. We talked this morning about how Paul defines love in 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, John points to a demonstration of love in, in the saving work of Christ. Well, we're going to see the demonstrations over the next course of weeks. 
Lord willing, but we want to look at the definition. Faith defined in verse 1. How do you find faith? Well, this is how the writer of the Hebrews defines it. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, faith is a lot like eyesight. You know, we see something with our eyes, then we know it's there. Although even there you have to be careful. Our eyes can deceive us. But we still go by the adage, seeing is believing. You know, like doubting Thomas. I'll, I'll believe Jesus is alive when I, when I see him, when I see the nail wounds in his hand, when I see the scar in his side. Well, the physical eyesight produces certainty of the reality of physical things, visible things. Faith is the spiritual vision, the way he describes it here, that produces certainty of the reality of invisible things, things that we don't see. For example, we believe that God exists, not because we see him with our physical eyes, but because we see him with the eyes of faith. Not blind faith, there's a lot of evidence to support the existence of God that we do see. Things like a beautiful day like today, the creation around us, one another. And why are we here? How did we get here? You know, back to the question, why is there something and not nothing? It's not blind faith, but we do believe God exists by faith. We don't see him physically, but we see him with the eyes of faith. In fact, uh, later on in chapter 11, verse 27, says that very thing of Moses. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king. He endured as seeing him who is invisible. Now, that's a contradiction in terms. If you're talking about literal sight, seeing him who is invisible. You don't see what's invisible. The point is, he saw with the eyes of faith the one who was invisible. Now, he saw manifestations of God, yes, but he does not see God himself. Now, just because something is invisible doesn't mean it's not real. Sometimes the world hears that. You can't see God. He's invisible. Oh, well, he's just, you know, something we make up. He's a product of our imagination. Not at all. It's not that we just dream it up and say it exists in some religious or mystical sense. Not at all. That the existence of the spiritual realm the existence of God himself in particular, is a matter of objective reality. It is interesting, by the way, uh, just in the realm of physics, which is an area of fascination, though of absolutely no expertise to me, um, the whole concept of dimensions that we don't perceive. Now, lest that sound overly strange, a pipe organ can produce sounds you don't hear, but you feel. Some of the lowest notes, you don't really hear them. Or just you sort of feel them and may not even recognize that you're perceiving them at all. A dog whistle. In fact, there's cell phones now that can produce a sound so high in pitch and yet quiet that most adults can't hear it. Kids in the classroom can hear it. Their, their hearing hasn't quite been worn down by life the way that some of us of more advanced years uh, are. Our hearing has been, you know, pummeled enough as to not quite be so sensitive on those higher levels. They can hear it. Adults can't. Does it exist? Well, you can't hear it. Of course it exists. Uh, and this whole concept in physics of other dimensions, you even hear people mention in all seriousness multiple universes. 
So maybe uh, with the advances in physics, the idea of dimensions that we are that we don't see, cannot perceive, and yet are very real and very much there. Now, I don't hold to multiple universes, by the way. Uh, uh, don't go out and quote me on that. But there are those who, in all seriousness, posit such things. Um, it, it, it seems even more plausible in our day than maybe a hundred years ago to uh, to posit realities that we do not perceive and yet nevertheless are there. Of course, as Christians, we've known that all along. We believe that there are angels who are involved with humanity one way or another, and certainly God himself does objectively exist, even if we can't see him with the eyes of faith. One great example of this, of course, in 2 Kings 6, Israel's at war with the king of Aram. And every time the Arameans tried to make a move, they were countered. Prophet Elijah, uh, Elisha warns the king of Israel, who was able to counter it, who was enraged. He wondered who was the spy on his staff, right? Remember that? He confronts them, you know. He says, will you not tell me which one of you is on the side of the king of Israel? None of us, my lord, the king, said his officers. But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. Well, go get him, said the king. Find him so I can capture him. Report comes back. Well, Elisha's in the town of Dothan, not L.A., not in Alabama, lower Alabama. So the king of Aram, the other Dothan. So the king of Aram sent a strong army, sends out horses and chariots. It's a great force to go and capture the prophet Elisha. And the next morning, Elisha's servant got up, and he goes out early in the morning, and he sees all these horses and chariots that had surrounded the city to come and take Elisha. Elisha says, don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. You can only imagine how the servant was you know, trying to, to, to reckon the numbers and wonder how his, how his boss came up with those figures. And Elisha prayed, O Lord, open his eyes that he may see. You've got to wonder what else Elisha saw as he went through life that no one else saw. But he saw it. He saw the balance of power here, and it was very different from what his servant perceived it to be. And so Elisha simply prays, Lord, open his eyes. Now, he was talking about his physical sight there, what he would actually perceive. And it says, the Lord did. He opened the servant's eyes, and he looked, and he saw what Elisha saw. He saw the hills full of horses and chariots all around Elisha. There are many people today who function under the delusion that there is no God. They're like Elisha's servant. They're functioning with only a very partial, truncated view of reality. Elisha saw the full picture. We need to remember that. When we look at situations that look dire, that look impossible, that look bleak, and to be sure that unless we see it, Biblically, unless we view it with the eyes of faith, which includes an omnipotent, a good, and an often surprising God, that we're not really getting the big picture. We need to see with the eyes of faith the reality of the spiritual world. Just some questions. What difference would it make in your life if you could see God? I don't know if you'd see him in the sky or where you'd see him, but if you could see God with your physical eyes looking at you, watching you, how would that affect what you say and think and do? If God was in the room with you and you could see him, whether you know, 
cloud, pillar of fire. Those, those have been done. Those were biblical manifestations of God. If he was there, you physically could see God or, or, or a manifestation of God's presence with you at all times. How would that affect the way you live? How would it affect the way you talk? How would it affect the things you do or don't do? What difference would it make in your life if you could see physically with your eyes angels and demons moving around here on earth, engaged in various activities? What difference would it make in your life right now if you could see with your physical eyes visibly Christ at the right hand of God as Stephen did in his dying moment? What difference would it make in your life if you could somehow physically see the Holy Spirit within you or around you or present with you somehow? What difference would it make in your life tomorrow if tonight God should allow you physically, with your physical eyes, to see the glories of heaven and the horrors of hell? If you just open that up as as he did Elijah's servant to allow you Literally, physically, to see those things. What difference would it make in your life? It shouldn't make any difference at all. Because while we can't see those things physically, we see them with the eyes of faith. God's Word tells us God sees us as with us at all times. That angel, angels and demons are real. That at this moment there are believers in that intermediate state awaiting the resurrection who nevertheless are in the presence of Christ and enjoying the glories of heaven. There are those souls that are in the torments of hell at this very moment. Can we see them with our physical eyes? No. But we see them with the eyes of faith because God's word tells us of the reality And so the fact that we can't see them physically should not make any difference at all than if we could actually see them in the way that we live. If your life would be different because you can see them physically than it is seeing them with the eyes of faith, then you don't fully believe the reality of those things. You need to ask God to increase your sight, to increase your faith. You know, God makes some tremendous promises in the Bible. We take him at his word. We believe what he tells us. We believe his promises. We may not always know how they're going to play out. We may not know the details, and sometimes we may be disappointed. We pray for someone's healing, and they don't get better. Or pray for someone to survive, and they die. But we do believe that God will fulfill all of his promises, that he will give us those things that he has said. We take him at his word. And therefore, we are, as the scriptures say here, we have assurance of these things that we hope for, just as if we already have them, because God has said it. He's made these promises. Faith is the assurance, the confidence of the things that we hope for, that we don't just sort of hope we'll get them, but they are there. They are real. So that's the first thing here is faith defined. What does it mean to have faith? Well, it means that you have this confidence in the word of God, that the things that he's promised are real, that the spiritual realities it describes are real, that the consequences of belief and unbelief are real, and we live accordingly. It's the assurance of all of this that we hope for, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And it shouldn't make any difference whether we could see them physically or not. That's faith. That's what it is. It's this assurance, this confidence of things hoped for. Now, That's faith defined. Verse 2 is faith commended, where there's a commendation for it. Notice what it says. 
For by it, that is faith, the people of old received their commendation. We're going to look at some of those as he goes on in this chapter to describe them. People of old, uh, literally the elders, those who are old, who lived, in this case, a long time ago, he's describing the heroes of the Old Testament, especially those that he names in this record. He mentions features of their lives that illustrate their faith in God. You could probably, in, in almost every case, point to features that also demonstrated a lapse of faith in God. Uh, the point is not that these people were perfect, but that in these particular cases he mentions, they demonstrate what it means to trust in God. Again, you could always point out places where they failed to trust in God, too, because these are real people. They're a lot like you and I are real people. We have our good days. We have our bad days. We have times when sanctification just seems to be an unrelenting coursing stream through our lives, and there are times when sanctification seems to have gone away altogether. Uh, these people were like that, too. But you can also point to times in your life or one another, another's lives where you trusted, where, where you relied on the promise of God and you stood strong. You can also point to times where you did not. And so what he's saying is this, uh, the things that are, are common in these that he points to are those things that demonstrate their faith in the Lord. And so the fact that they failed at points didn't make them illegitimate children. I mean, they weren't trusting in God, weren't God's people. It just means that there were times where their lives did point out faith, did demonstrate faith in a way that uh, was worthy of being pointed out, worthy of imitation. And so we need to, as he does here, learn from those who have gone before us. One another today, yes, but those who've gone before us in the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we look at these various characters that he points out, remember what it is that God wants you to imitate. God told Noah to go build an ark, therefore I should go build an ark. Well, no, God didn't tell you to go build an ark. What he did tell you is to trust him the way that he told Noah to trust him. You know, God sent David out to fight a giant. Well, I should go out and find some giant to fight. Now, don't pick on Mike, Owen. No, that's not the point. The point is to demonstrate the same trust in God that they did. Whatever situation God has placed you in or where he may call you to serve him or call you, as he did in chapter 10, to suffer for him, as many of these in chapter 11 did as well. So he says, by it, the people of old received their commendation. He doesn't say by it they received their salvation, other than their saving faith, because, again, they weren't perfect. He's pointing out works, works of faith, uh, but he's pointing those out as, as kind of the, the, the type, what to do, what to see in them that we would want to imitate in ourselves as well. Um, and he commends them for it. By them, they received their commendation, their, their high opinion in the eyes of the Lord. The last thing that he mentions here is not only faith defined in verse 1, faith commended, and it is, it's a commendable thing when people trust in the Lord in various circumstances. And the final thing is faith illustrated. I still think that'd be a good name for a magazine, faith illustrated. You have pictures of people in motion trusting God. Well, no, wait, but Sports Illustrated, it may not work that way, but. Faith Illustrated. It sounds like it would be a good, good magazine. And that's what he says in verse 3. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Now, he mentions these various 
heroes of the faith that he describes. But he, but before he does that, he goes back even farther. He goes back all the way back to the beginning. He goes back all the way to creation. He illustrates a statement that faith is being certain of what we do not see. This is his illustration. Because if there's anything we can't see, it's creation. No one was there. You know, that, that in, a, in one sense, he singles out as sort of the preeminent uh, object of faith, to believe God when he tells us how the world came to be. He goes all the way back to creation, in this case, uh, the very beginning. Now, the scriptures do affirm in this passage, in this verse, the doctrine of creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. He says, what was seen was not made out of things that are visible. And by that, he means things that were there, things that existed. I mean, it was created out of things that existed that were invisible. His point is, God didn't take what was already there and, and make something else out of it. At least in its initial form, he brought the raw matter of this universe into being out of nothing. And that's the problem, even for evolutionists. You, you can only trace it back so far. You hit a stopping point. You know, whether it's, you know, how did this come from that? Or you go all the way back to the point of singularity. You know, where did, where did that come from? This, this little dot of immense mass, density, uh, you know, fine, if you want to say the whole universe was compacted into this tiny dot, where did the tiny dot come from? How did it get there? For that matter, what was around it? It, it's, it strains the brain to ponder it. But that's exactly where the writer of the Hebrews goes, because he understands, even back then, that faith in creation out of nothing by God is, or that creation out of nothing by God is a matter of faith. We're not, no one was there to observe it. We can't see it. Now, Darwinism, of course, denies the biblical doctrine of creation. Theistic evolution is not Darwinism, because the very essence of Darwinism is unguided natural selection, whereas theistic evolution tries to reach a middle ground by, by saying, well, God guided it, but that guts Darwinism, which which is a major tenet, is that it's unguided. It's, it's random selection, random mutations, unguided. So Darwinism is, is very different. It, it denies the biblical doctrine of creation. It claims that life came into being, the universe exists as a matter of the right biochemical reactions and energy and time and all of this going together. Uh, but you have to remember, if I could twist this verse a little bit, by faith, we understand that the universe evolved from nothing or from simple life forms or simple molecules so that what was seen, uh, what is seen was made uh, by itself, made itself. Uh, that's a faith position. That's what we have to recognize. This isn't science versus faith. This is faith in one understanding versus faith in another understanding. Because Darwinism requires immense faith to believe the claims that are made. And someone says, well, what about the fossil record? Uh, I want to read you a somewhat extended quote from a book that I highly recommend, Philip Johnson's book, Darwin on Trial. Johnson was one of the early uh, uh, intelligent design proponents. Uh, he argues more from a logical uh, point of view. His training is legal, not scientific. 
but his specialty was assessment of evidence, looking at evidence. And he looks at Darwinism from those eyes, and it doesn't add up. He says this, Just about everyone who took a college biology course during the last 60 years or so has been led to believe the fossil record was a bulwark of support for classic Darwinian thesis, uh, not a liability that had to be explained away. And if we didn't take a biology class, we saw Inherit the Wind and laughed along with everybody else when Clarence Darrow made a monkey out of William Jennings Bryan. But I wonder if Brian would have looked like such a fool if he could have found a distinguished paleontologist having one of those, and he puts in quotes, honest moments, and produced him as a surprise witness to tell the jury and theater audience the fossil record shows a consistent pattern of sudden appearance followed by stasis. That is a steady condition. That life's history is more a story of variation around a set of basic designs than one of accumulating improvement. That extinction has been predominantly by catastrophe rather than gradual obsolescence. That orthodox interpretations of the fossil record often owe more to Darwinist preconception than to the evidence itself. Imagine the confusion Brian could have caused by demanding the right to uh, read his own preferred evidence into those famous gaps. Why not, if Darwin could do it? Paleontologists seem to have thought it their duty to protect the rest of us from the erroneous conclusions we might have drawn if we'd known the actual state of the evidence. And uh, Stephen Jay Gould, whom he quotes, who died uh, not too many, too, too many years ago, Stephen Jay Gould described, quote, the extreme rarity of transitional forms in the fossil record, end quote, as, quote, the trade secret of paleontology, end quote. It's really interesting, uh, you may have read in the papers this week or online, uh, about a foot bone that they've found for someone who lived supposedly five million years ago. The amazing thing about this foot, this bone, one of the bones of, of the foot, was that it is, it's rigid and it's arched. They said it's amazing how much it looks like a modern human foot, which only proves that our ancestors were not using their feet to swing from the trees, but were walking on solid ground. And, of course, it had a picture of the bone with a whole foot constructed around it, which looked a lot like my foot, to be frank. Um, you know, it looked like a, any foot. What's the difference? This was not shocking. You know, it, a lot of reconstruction there, but the reality is they basically said this is like a modern human foot. It walked on the ground. It didn't grab hold of branches. So by their own admission, top paleontologists like Gould and others find the, re- the fossil record more of a problem than a help to Darwinism. So I hold on to it. Well, it's kind of a perversion of Peter's question. And Darwin, to whom shall we go? Where else is there? They're not about to acknowledge creation ex nihilo. They would say that's unscientific. I would say, well, if it's objective fact, what's unscientific about that? It's reality. So that's what he's saying. We have to trust that God created, just as they have to trust that all of these things happened, which logic and the fossil, fossil record is described by people who are experts in it, and I'm not, uh, would, would, that it denies. The point is, God was there. God knows how the universe came into being, and he tells us how it does. Faith means that we take God's word for it. He's the creator. He's the one who did it. There are debates over the length of days and so forth. I personally think when it says evening and morning were the first day, 
Sounds a lot like what I experience in, a, in, a, in an ordinary week. But the point is that faith believes that God was the creator, as it says here, and that he brought what is seen into being out of what is not seen. In other words, out of nothing. So God calls us to live by faith. It means we live by God's word. It means we take God at his word. It means we obey his commands because we believe they are right and that we'll be happier obeying than sinning and that we bring glory to him as we obey. We act on his promises because we believe God is trustworthy. We live by faith, not by sight. Like Peter, we're often tempted to take our eyes off Jesus and look at the storm blowing all around us. We become afraid and we sink. And that's when we need simply to refocus our gaze on God, remind ourselves who he is, what he's promised, what he's done for us, that living by faith is the best way to live, and that for those who live by faith in Christ and live by faith in the word of God, his commendation awaits. This Christmas broadcast of 1939, England's King George VI broadcast these words. They're not his, words of Minnie Louise Haskins. I said to the man who stood at the gate of the year, give me a light that I may tread safely into the unknown. And he replied, go out into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God. That shall be to you better than light and safer than a known way. Message of Hebrews 11, verses 1 through 3, indeed, message of the whole chapter. It's better to follow a known God than a known way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these verses. And Father, we recognize that these in this chapter are not only commended, but for as long as time exists, recorded here in Scripture, uh, as examples of what it meant to trust in you. Uh, Lord, we recognize their lives weren't always commendable, but in these points they were. And Father, we pray for ourselves that our lives would at various points uh, demonstrate this same faith. Lord, especially when you call us into times of suffering or uh, fear or concern. Uh, And Lord, in times of plenty, uh, in times of prosperity, that we would not cease to trust in you and to walk by faith and not by sight. Lord, increase our faith. We pray, O God, that on that day that we do stand before you, that you would commend and be pleased with the faith by which we live. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.